The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am so honored to have with us a wild salmon advocate, a former Food and Society Policy Fellow, a family fisherwoman, and an expert on all things related to the sea, Anne Mosness. Anne, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. And I know you from being a Food and Society Policy Fellow together, but I also recently heard you speak at the Food Med Conference in Seattle, and I was so impressed with your wisdom that one only gets after being on the ocean for 28 years. And you have some marvelous information to share with us. You know, we hear so much about the benefits of eating fish, this desire to feed the world. We hear about aquaculture. We hear about fish farming. We hear about this blue revolution. And I can't think of anyone better to tease out the facts than you. Thank you. Tell me something. How did you get started with fishing? Was it a family? Just your dad was a fisherman, so therefore you became a fisherwoman. And how did you become an advocate for the sea? Well, like farm families, it's a tradition that oftentimes it's the boys that go into the business. My father had no sons. So after I was out of college, I was working in our central district in a sheltered workshop in Seattle. But my father needed a a deckhand for three weeks, and so he asked if I would go to Alaska. And after three weeks, I just knew that was what I wanted to do. It was so exciting we were up in the Bering Sea region on a small boat. The, the fisheries was Bristol Bay. So I continued fishing with him, and then I fished my own boat. I fished Copper River, and then I went back to Bristol Bay when my father was getting older. And like other family businesses, he stayed on as long as he could. He would come during the last years of his life until he was 84. He would come for a week or less, but he was still there. And my son, I had two children during those years, and... I fished actually till I was eight months pregnant, fished on crutches other times. (laughs) Both of my children fished with me, and my son came up at 10 years old to Bristol Bay, so for four summers, we had 70 years between the oldest and the youngest on our boat. So like other families that are proud of the food that they provide, and they see the skills and the knowledge and the joy of producing a food that's passed on through generations, we become so skilled with duct tape and twine and And so it was very exciting, and so I continued doing that until 2001. Unfortunately, my boat burned in a fire. And so at that time, I became fully immersed in educating people about the health benefits of wild fish, which I had seen personally in my own family. I had done a lot of research about. And then the risks of the marine feedlots that were beginning to be placed in our waters here in Washington, as well as in British Columbia, the growing of thin fish, largely salmon, which has devastated wild fish populations in Europe, in Norway, in Chile, and we're fearing that it could wipe out our wild fish here in the Pacific Northwest. So I've just been on this mission pretty much full-time now for the last decade, 
Anne, why are we so compelled to raise fish in these factory-like settings, these fish farms, as opposed to relying on protecting the wild fish ecosystem? Is it that we don't have enough wild fish to feed the growing population of the world? Well, actually, Alaska has sustainability written into their state constitution. And so there's no species of salmon uh, or wild fish in Alaska that are threatened or endangered. And so we have abundant fish in most of the regions of the North Pacific. In fact, the fisheries that I was most involved with, Bristol Bay, between 25 million and 65 million salmon return in a month. But that region is also has a lot of minerals, offshore oil. There are plans to put in the deepest open pit mine in North America in that abundant wild salmon watershed. And so I came across a quote decades ago and ran into this quote again when I was reading a book. And it says that the destruction of common food resources is not a sad byproduct of modern industrialization, but a necessary prerequisite for its success. And I almost think that this is what we're witnessing, is that if you destroy the environment and you no longer have your common food resource or your readily available food resource, you you have food insecurity, you have economic insecurity. Well, we've done that with a lot of our dams and dredging and dirtying our waterways. We're losing our wild fish. But what I see in Alaska, which doesn't have large human population, doesn't have a lot of industry, we're actually collapsing the economy of those coastal villages. And those folks are going to have a very hard time resisting the money coming from these dirty extractive industries, open pit mining, offshore oil drilling, very short-term industries. And we seem to have various agencies promoting aquaculture as a way of growing those fish so that we no longer rely on the the wild fish, mm-hmm. the abundant health-enhancing wild fish. Mm-hmm. Now, the wild fish populations that support thousands of separate family fishing businesses. And so I've wondered, too, you know, if there's some collusion going on between these large corporations that want to come in and, and extract the resources, the non-renewable resources. Mm-hmm. It seems just too circumstantial that we have the Department of Commerce promoting marine feedlots and at the same time we have large-scale petroleum energy, hard rock mineral extractive industries wanting to come into the very same regions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting, too, that largely consumers are unaware of the significant differences that we can make by what we purchase at the grocery store or what we ask for specifically in restaurants. I think I read a statistic that said the the majority of fish anymore that's served in restaurants are indeed factory farmed because it's more, um, well, short-term, more inexpensive. But in the long term, of course, it's going to be much more costly. Well, it's costly in the environmental impacts, and that's not what's taken into account. We have fish farms here in Washington State, so I can tell you what we've witnessed here. These open mesh cages are incapable of confining the fish. In four years' time, more than 600,000 non-native Atlantic salmon escaped into our waters. The farms are directly across from Seattle, allow more than 5 million pounds of fish waste to flush annually into our waters. And these are waters that, that are 
essential habitat for a lot of other marine creatures. So when we're allowing these escaped non-native fish that, that are predators on small fish, we allow those in our waters, we allow that massive amount of pollution in our waters, these cages are equally incapable of confining chemicals, fungicides, algicides, antibiotics, any of the chemicals that are used to grow any livestock in confinement. Mm-hmm. You know, we have outbreaks of parasites and now pathogens that put our wild fish at risk. Here in British Columbia, there's infectious salmon anemia that possibly has been in the wild fish populations for a decade, and the politicians have kept that information hidden. In Washington, we had an outbreak of viral hemorrhagic septicemia in our salmon farms several winters ago. And so we have to wonder, why are these marine feedlots not just allowed, but being promoted by various agencies? And they're not paying the cost of production because nature provides sewage disposal at no cost. And so I actually think it's that if markets are flooded with cheap farm fish and people stop valuing wild fish and we bankrupt those coastal communities and those small businesses that have depended for thousands of years on abundant fish, mm-hmm. if we bankrupt them now, though, then there will be no opposition, as I said, to these short-term, dirty, extractive industries that want to come into our coastal regions. When you were speaking at Food Med, you also shared another quote, and it had to do with this idea of not fighting for what we do not know or for what we do not have anymore. Or what we do not love. Or what we do not love, exactly. So if we destroy these small communities of family fishermen, after a generation or so, we won't know what we've had. We won't know what what we're what we could be loving and what could be contributing to our society. That's exactly right. And there's an intentional inefficiency in the Alaska salmon fleet. The license holder has to be on the boat, and so there's no consolidation or monopolies that that are allowed. So that's why I say I fished till I was eight months pregnant, because for my boat to earn the income for my family, I needed to be on that boat. And so there are these thousands of families that have their children coming in and and taking over the businesses uh, or young people that see this as a a career move. And at one time, with stability in the fishing industry, our licenses were valued at $300,000 in the mid-'90s. But so many farmed fish flooded the markets, and there was no differentiation. So consumers could not tell if they were buying a farmed salmon or a wild salmon Within a half a dozen years, in the early 2000s, the value of the Bristol Bay permits collapsed to about $20,000. So there were suicides, as there there are when industries and remote regions are in distress and they don't see any options. Mm -hmm. And there were regulations on the books that would require labeling of colorants in farm salmon, but the FDA didn't enforce their own regulations. So we filed a national class action lawsuit in 2003 which requires the labeling of colorants in farm salmon. And that's a health advisory as much as anything because some chemically sensitive people become ill when they ingest campesanthin and these petrochemically-based colorants. So the public finally had a way of differentiating. Uh-huh. And other studies were done and showed the higher PCB and dioxin levels in farm fish. And then more people became aware of the environmental impacts of these 
concentrations of fish in these marine feedlots. And so savvy consumers now are selecting wild fish, and they're doing that for a multitude of reasons. But it's worrisome that we still have federal agencies, the Department of Commerce, which is the nat- and two-thirds of the budget of the Department of Commerce, is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that is heavily promoting marine fish farms in our coastal waters. We have the USDA possibly certifying farmed fish as organic, even though they would not meet the strict and reliable organic requirements and principles. We have the FDA promoting genetically engineered salmon. Mm. And I love your use of words. You're calling these fish farms marine feedlots. But what consumers are told, usually, is that we've got aquaculture. And I can hear the different connotation with both of those terms, and I really like the way you align marine feedlot abuses with factory farms that, for those of us who live more inland, we understand the abuses of factory farms. And I I think it's important for our listeners to understand that there are so many parallels, many of which you've touched on, but I, I want to revisit something that you told me before the interview, and that was the use of hormones and antibiotics on fish farms. Yes, that's right. Because these are concentrated uh, feedlot operations, there's a transmission of parasites and pathogens animal to animal, and so they use more antibiotics per weight in salmon production in the farms than any other livestock production. Um, the Environmental Working Group has determined that there's 16 times more PCBs and, and I believe dioxins in the farmed fish, rather you know larger amounts than in the wild fish. You medicate to the weakest animal, and as Dr. Neil Fraser, a researcher from British Columbia, has said, nature has an inexhaustible supply of diseases. And so we have to remember the difference between on-land feedlots and the marine environment feedlots is that it's a fluid environment in our coastal waters. And so everything flushes out of the cages. And that is the great subsidy that the aquaculture industry has come to expect is that they can put these open cages in marine waters and they don't have to contain the pollution, parasites, pathogens, or chemicals. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Ann Mosness. She is a wild salmon advocate, a marine ecosystem advocate. She was a former Food and Society Policy Fellow and a member of a line of family fishermen who are right in the ocean, watching the seas, watching how the ecosystem is affected by the changes that that humans have really inflicted upon our whole food ecosystem. And I want to get back on that point because I want to empower our listeners to understand how much of an impact they can have and also the misinformation that we get. I remember being in a grocery store one day and being told by the gentleman behind the fish case that the farmed fish was better that the farmed fish had more omega-3 fatty acids, and I knew differently. But I knew differently because I'm a dietitian. What concerns me are the consumers who don't know and who might take that information to heart. And what's concerning to me, Melinda, is that because there are so many federal agencies that are promoting either 
open cage fish farming in our marine environment as the Department of Commerce, NOAA, promotes, or genetically engineered fish as the FDA promotes, or possibly certification of farm fish as organic as the USDA is promoting, they're going to put marketing money behind these kinds of products. And so you'll get even more deceptive advertising or dishonest information. Exactly. And I think we saw that on the Food Med panel. There was a gentleman who was promoting an aquaculture farmed fish, and I had asked him what those fish were eating because we know that what we eat is what we become. And that holds true with the animals that we consume. So if we have a cow or if we have hogs that are eating from a pasture-based system, they're going to have a healthier mix of fatty acids. Similarly with fish, if they're eating in a wild environment, they're going to have a different fatty acid makeup than, say, fish that are being fed corn and soy. And in actuality, that's indeed what these farmed fish are eating, corn and soy, and genetically modified, I might add, which makes no sense. Well, when we had listening sessions that were sponsored by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, to get comments from citizens around the country, we had people from the Illinois Soybean Manufacturers Association and the American Soybean Manufacturers Association flying out here to the Northwest to say that they were looking forward to providing the feed for the aquaculture industry. So I see this as a dumping ground for these heavily subsidized crops and grains. Absolutely. But these fish that are reared in cages, the carnivorous species, have a high need for protein. And so what they're really also being fed are the small fish that are plundered from the coastlines of developing nations. And it's more than an environmental issue. It's really a social justice issue because we're taking the small fish from basically the plates of people in poorer nations. And we can justify that by calling those trash fish or scrap fish. But those mackerel and herring and sardines and anchovies and anchovettas are essential proteins to the human population as well as to the entire marine food web. So I believe it's 80% of the fish oil and fish meal that's taken from these fisheries is fed to confined animals on land as well as farmed fish. Hmm. And I have to ask you about the GE fish situation because we you touched on that earlier and I know that it's something that many consumers are concerned about. Genetically engineered salmon. What is the status of that? Well, we thought for a decade that the GE fish issue was dead and over. Uh, back in, I think, 2001, Greenpeace flew me to Boston to speak at a conference, a press conference, where we were showing the alignment of the conservation groups with the commercial fishing folks, and we had all the science that showed that genetically engineered fish were a disaster. There was something called the Trojan gene hypothesis that described how only 60 genetically engineered fish, you know, if they escaped into a population of 60,000 wild fish, would result in the death of the wild fish populations as well as the genetically engineered fish populations in just 40 fish generations. So mm -hmm. these fish would be larger, faster growing. They would be reproductively stronger fish, but they are genetically inferior and so here we thought there would be no possibility that this biotech creature would go forward. And yet in September of 2010, the nation was given 10 working days to comment on the FDA's 
plan to approve genetically engineered salmon. Now, that happened to be occurring at the same time that the first Livestock Biotech Summit was being held in South Dakota. And a senior biotechnologist from the FDA was on the planning committee of that Livestock Biotech Summit. So I think it's really not only about GE salmon, it's about the other biotech animals, the pig, goat, a couple kinds of cattle that are waiting to be approved once salmon are approved by the FDA. So in those 10 days last year, more than 400,000 comments were gathered up and sent in, and, and I'm working with Center for Food Safety and Union of Concerned Scientists and large national coalition to try to get information to the public. But again, it's another federal agency that I don't think is doing its job of protecting the food system, protecting health, protecting the environment. Uh, there seems to be a revolving door in too many of these agencies with people coming from private industry into policy-making positions. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned at all about the nuclear accident in Japan and how those toxic compounds from Japan will influence the fish populations in Alaska and Washington? Well, we're waiting to learn more. Actually, in January, I'm uh, organizing a presentation by Captain Charles Moore, who's the founder of the Algeda Foundation, and he studies ocean plastics, and he's coming to talk about the amount of debris and mm, plastics that are coming, boats, I mean, everything that was swept from Japan across the ocean will be arriving in our coastal regions in the next year. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're waiting to learn about the amount of radiation. Um, I will say that the kind of salmon that I catch and that other people who gill net and use nets, we catch the fish that feed on the plankton and the crustaceans. They filter feed the oceans, the sockeye, mm-hmm. humpies, which are called pinks, and chums. And these are the abundant fish. Nature created in abundance these species of salmon. And these are the ones that are often found in cans. If they're flash frozen, they come by slow barge from Alaska. You know, the carbon footprint is considerably less when they come that way, I think consumers can comfortably consume these wild fish that that eat very low on the food web. Mm -hmm. That was going to be my next question to you. You know, what are the tips for consumers so that we can work together with family fishermen to preserve our marine ecosystem? Well, dietitians often recommend eating salmon and these cold water fish at least once a week, and people view wild salmon as a celebration meal oftentimes, and yet canned salmon, particularly if it's not farmed Atlantic, canned salmon is often wild salmon and makes lovely little fish cakes or pocket pita sandwiches for kids. So that's a way of eating salmon and getting the omega-3s, the long-chain omega-3s that the body has to produce because you can't access it uh, in any other way except through the cold water fish, as I understand. Yes. And it has all these you know, health benefits, everything from enhancing cognitive brain function to, in the wintertime, keeping our skin from being too dry. And I have to admit I had wild tuna for breakfast and I'll probably have salmon for dinner uh, because I depend on it so much. I have arthritis. That's why I was on crutches a couple of years. But it's because I eat the fish that though I've had to have surgeries, joint replacement surgeries, I don't have to take any other meds. Right. Oh, I don't doubt that the omega-3s are 
extremely beneficial to your condition. So we want consumers to know that the canned salmon then is a good source, an economical source of omega-3s, and that it is a fisherman-friendly, ecosystem-friendly source. And then what happens when we go to the fish counter? What questions should we be asking? What do we want? And thankfully, there is a label, thanks in large part to your efforts. But what do we want to look for specifically on the label? Well, unfortunately, we can't always rely on the labeling. Even here in the Northwest, there have been exposés on the number of fish that are considered misbranded. They're actually just fraudulently mislabeled. They will say they're wild because, of course, people have realized the benefits of eating wild fish, but they'll be farmed fish. And oh, so my. I Here in the Northwest, I even tell retailers that they have to label the farm fish as containing artificial colorants because it's a health advisory, and I will say to them, you know, you're, you could possibly be sued by someone who has an allergy to campesanthin and these petrochemically-based colorants. You need to label your farm fish as containing artificial colorants. It's an FDA regulation. Hmm. If they say that the fish is wild, then you could ask what kind. Is it a sockeye? Is it a humpy, which is also called a pink salmon? Is it a chum, which is also called a kita or a silver bright? Is it a chinook, which is a king? Is it a silver, which is a coho? I mean, there's, it's confusing, but the place to get information about these species would be the Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute's website, and you can find recipes and you can find uh, all the species of salmon, pictures of them, descriptions of their texture. It's the alaskaseafood.org website, it will advise you to buy your salmon frozen and cook it frozen, which is the only way I ever cook fish. Even if I'm doing a, a large number of fish, if I'm cooking fish for a conference or something, I will just keep it frozen until I'm ready to cook it. Mm-hmm. That fish is impeccably fresh that way. I would rarely buy a fish that has come what they would call fresh. Mm-hmm. You know, it has sat in totes and in on tarmacs and in distribution centers and in retail cases on ice. Mm -hmm. So my advice is to buy your salmon and your wild fish as a frozen product. Look for canned salmon. You could look for canned tuna with a high-fat content. You know that's a baby albacore tuna. You can select the wild fish. And economically, one of the other things that I learned over the years was that we waste about 40% of the food in our food system Mm -hmm. in the United States. And so by valuing our foods more, paying a little bit more, not wasting it, then I think we can feel okay about buying those fish that might cost a little bit more. Because then we know we'll eat it all. Exactly. I want to thank you so much, Anne, for being with me today. We have been speaking with Anne Mosness. She is a former Food and Society Policy Fellow. She is a wild salmon and marine ecosystem advocate, and she is a family fisherman and enlightened and can enlighten us further about the quality of the fish we eat and the importance of it. I want to leave our listeners with a couple of websites in addition to the alaskaseafood.org website, the Center for Food Safety and ge-fish.org 
website will keep us informed about the genetically engineered salmon, the risks to our health and our ecosystem with that, and we can also get some action alerts on how we can be politically active and keep that off the market and out of our waters. The Institute of Ag and Trade Policy, also IATP.org, and Union of Concerned Scientists, as well as Food and Water Watch. That website also features Anne as a fish fighter and highlights all the wonderful work that you're doing. I want to also let everyone know that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Anne, thank you so much for your work to preserve the oceans and a safe fish supply. Thank you, Melinda. It's been delightful talking with you. Mm-hmm. 